welcome to the teaching ministry of Magnolias First. For more information, visit www.magnoliasfirst.org. Why are you a Christ follower? I think that's a question that we would maybe consider to be light, maybe a little trivial, uh, maybe something that should be a given. But I would argue that ultimately that's a question that we should be asking from the beginning of our salvation all the way through our walk. And the reason I say that is because if you look at the ministry of Christ and the people that he spoke with, how often did people come and ask Jesus a question and he responded to them with another question? How often did Jesus prod into the motive of the hearts of the people that he spoke to? And so I would ask you again, why are you a Christ follower? What is it that makes you one? What marks you as a Christ follower? Is it because when you were young, uh, you were scared, you heard about hell for the first time and you were scared, and so you prayed a prayer? Are you a Christ follower because you're a good moral person? I think that's often the signature in our culture right now is that we're a Christ follower because we're a good moral person, and so that's what makes us so. I work in youth ministry. Oftentimes, I, I speak with youth, and they're a Christ follower because their family is a Christ follower. So it's almost like their faith is just handed down to them. Are you a Christ follower because you grew up in church, and that's always the answer you were told to give? I think it's important that we take that question, that we drive it down into the heart. And the reason being is because if these things which I have just listed are reasons that you consider yourself to be a Christ follower, then how easy is it that Christianity has just become a social club for you or a standard of academics where you come to church on a Sunday, you sit in a Bible study, you go into a small group, and really what it's all about is just having the right answer right here that you can give to somebody who asks. How often do we have the misconception that Christianity is just intellectualism and we've turned the church just into school? We come and get taught a little bit. We have a little bit of our Jesus time. We pay our dues and then we move on with our day. I think, honestly, this is often the misconception of what Christianity is all about. And because that's a common misconception, what we end up with is churches that turn into a very seeker-friendly base. And I'm not saying that we should be purposeful in trying to push people out the door, but the, the, the problem that comes in when our method of, of Christianity and of converting people is seeker-friendly, then we really miss what Christianity is all about. Ephesians chapter two, verse one says that we are dead in sin. And the problem with seeker-friendly methods is that a seeker-friendly method means that we're trying to coax a dead person into taking a step toward Christ, and we can no easily coax them into taking one step than we could taking 10,000. And so again, I would ask you, why are you a Christ follower? What makes you one? In John chapter 3, a man comes to Jesus, Nicodemus, who's quite possibly the most religious man of the first century. He would have had the, the first five books at minimum, the first five books of the Bible, memorized by heart, could stand up here and quote them to you. He followed the law to the T. He was, he was praised for his religious practices. And he comes to Jesus by night, 
a lawyer in the scriptures, essentially, comes to Jesus by night and says, good teacher, we know that you're sent by God. And so he comes to him basically saying, good teacher sent by God, what's the teaching you have for us? What's your good teaching? And Jesus says, truly I say unto you, unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of heaven. How often do we mistake good news with good teaching? How often do we think Jesus just came to set an example for us and not be our Savior, our Lord, and our King? The title of today's message is The Good Person and the Good News. And if you understand what the good news or the gospel is really all about, then you'll understand that really those two phrases don't work out because according to the scripture, none are good, no, not one. None has understanding and none seeks after God. So there is no good person. Therefore, good teaching can't help us. And so what we need is we need good news. So as we look at that, we have to understand that when Jesus came, he did come as a teacher and a good one. But he comes first and foremost as a savior to give us good news and not good teaching, not good philosophy, not good morality. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to continue on through Hebrews. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 8. And just to, to set a, some context before I read the passage, we'll be in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 13. What the author of Hebrews is going to do in this passage is he's going to make a compare and contrast, ultimately, to the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. That's the point of the book of Hebrews, is to make a compare and contrast to the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant. What did we have in the Old Covenant? What do we have in the blood of Christ? And how is it better? And today he's really going to blow the doors off. And at the end of the passage, he's going to say something that's offensive to us so often. That the old covenant's been made obsolete. That the new one's better. And so the author says this in Hebrews chapter 8, starting in verse 6. He says, but now Jesus... Our high priest has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood. For he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God based on a better promise. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second one to replace it. But when God found fault with the people, he said, The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. They did not remain faithful to my covenant, so I turned my back on them. But this is the new covenant I'll make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you shall know the Lord for everyone, from the least to the greatest of them, will know me already. For I will forgive their wickedness and I'll never again remember their sins. And so when God speaks of a new covenant, it means he's made the first one obsolete. It's now out of date and will soon disappear. And so we're looking at a compare and contrast between the old covenant and the new. And I'm going to be honest, I'm not going to spend a whole ton of time on the old covenant because the author doesn't. He uses the Old Testament to teach us about the new. 
And so what I want to do is I want to look at three things that we learn about the new covenant according to this passage from the author in Hebrews, who ultimately is quoting Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. We learn three things. One, inside the new covenant, the law of God is written on our hearts and on our minds. Two, we have an acquainted knowledge or a relationship with God in the new covenant. And then three, in the new covenant, we have mercy and we have forgiveness. And so we'll look at each three of those really quickly and then we'll apply it. Uh, The first thing is that he writes his law on our hearts and on our minds. Now that's so important for us in Christianity because this takes us out of a religious paradigm. Okay, now let me set the tone for that first by giving you an example. Uh, Brooklyn, from here, Brooklyn is about 1,400 miles. And I know that because I've driven it in a 26-foot box truck, and our average speed was 53 miles an hour. It took a really long time. But imagine for a second that you had to drive a 1,400-mile trip, and the speed limit to get there was 25 miles an hour all the way. Imagine that for a second. And imagine you're like, you know what, I'm a law-abiding citizen, and so I'm going to get in my vehicle, I'm driving 25 on the dot, not slower, not faster, all the way into Brooklyn. That's what I'm going to do because I, I obey the law. And so you do it. And kudos to you, you're patient, but I'm going to promise you right now, you will hate every single minute of that drive. You'll hate every minute of it. Maybe at the beginning, you're going to pride yourself and how law-abiding you really are. But an hour in, you're gonna be losing your mind because you'll have so much farther to go. It'll seem like you'll never get there. Now, why do I give you that example? Because that's what it's like to live under Old Covenant theology, under Old Covenant belief. You think the law is just this outward thing that you have to try your best to live up to, whether you hate it or don't. And it's funny because in Deuteronomy chapter 28, which is the book of the law, God says, because you won't serve me with joy and gladness of heart, I will give you over to your enemies. He doesn't say, because you won't serve me, I'll give you over, but because you won't serve me with joy and gladness of heart. You see, if the speed limit analogy carries over into being a Christ follower, what God is not interested in, he's not interested in your outward obedience. He's interested in your desires and your delight to be in obedience to him. That is what he's interested in, and that's what it means when he writes his law on our hearts. You see, the heart, in, in, our, in our very superficial culture, we consider the heart to be a matter of the emotions, but in ancient thought, especially biblical thought, the heart is something so much deeper than your emotions. The heart is the control center of your being, The heart is what fuels your emotions. It's what fuels your desires. It's what drives your will. The heart is unsearchable for you. The only thing you know is from the heart comes thoughts, according to Matthew chapter 15. And so the heart is like the origin, the seat of our being. It's so deep. And what God tells us in the new covenant is that he will take his law and he'll write it on our hearts. He'll change us at the deepest core level of our being to where we will desire and delight to want to walk in his righteousness. 
And I think that's what Jesus is doing in Matthew chapter 5. Think about Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus starts to talk about the law, and he talks about things like sexual immorality, about adultery. And he says, you've heard, thou shalt not commit adultery. And when we think about that, we think, okay, so what that means is that a married person can't sleep another uh, person, or what that means is that we can't have sex sex premaritably, maritally, but ultimately what, what, that, what that means is something far beyond that because Jesus takes it deeper. You see, Jesus takes the outward command and he applies it down to the heart. He says, but I say to you, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. You see, Jesus says the law isn't meant to just be an outward conformity the law is meant to penetrate deep down in. It's something that you should be obeying from here. And that's why Jesus, when he speaks to the religious hypocrites of his day, he calls them whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but full of dead bones on the inside. And so you think about that and you go, Daniel, that's impossible. Like, we can't even look after, we can't, if we hate someone internally, that means we've already murdered them. Like, what am I supposed to do with that? That's so impossible for me to even fulfill that. And let me just say this, you're correct. If you think that being a Christ follower is all about you mustering up your own strength to live this out, you're right. You will fail miserably because he's not meant to be your example and teacher, but your savior, your redeemer. You cannot do this on your own. That's why the old covenant doesn't work. But the new covenant, he writes his law on our hearts. He changes us. We're born anew. And so by him, we're able. Second point, we have an acquainted knowledge or we have a relationship with God. Now, this is an interesting one because there's kind of a parallel passage, a cross-reference to Jeremiah chapter 31, which is what the author of Hebrews 8 uses. And in uh, this side passage, it's Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. But in verse 27, he says something very specifically. God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel, he says, and I will fill them with my spirit and cause them to walk in my statutes and to carefully obey my ordinances. That's what he says. He says, I'll fill them with my spirit, and by doing that, cause them to walk in my statutes and to carefully obey my ordinances. And so you find this parallel. How is it that God writes his law on our hearts and on our minds? It's by filling us with his spirit. And something we need to know about the spirit of God, the spirit of God is the abiding presence of God. It's no less than God himself. It's him entirely. And it's interesting also because in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter says that we've been given everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him. In other words, we don't need a change in circumstances. We don't need a new boyfriend, a new girlfriend, a new wife, a new husband. We don't need new children. We don't need new parents. We don't need a new school. We don't need a new anything. What we need is we need to have the acquainted knowledge, the relationship with our God by his spirit. And if we have that, we have everything that we need for life and godliness. And it's even a game changer. 
in the face of every other religion. If you think about what religion is ultimately, it's that we meet the criteria, right? We do the right things, and so we qualify. Uh, and so if we do this, we do that, blank this, then that's what makes me a Christ follower. But it's funny because in Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to address people who have that mentality. He's going to mention two types of people. He's going to mention people who profess his name, and he's going to mention people who do service in his name. This is what he says. He says, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and perform many miracles in your name, but I'll reply to them, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. It's so interesting because you have one group of people on the end, in the, on the day of judgment, they come to him and they say, Lord, Lord, and he goes, I don't know you. Just because you say Lord, just because you said the prayer, doesn't make God obligated to have to save you. And just because you preach a message in the name of Jesus, and just because you do ministry in the name of Jesus, and just because you perform miracles in the name of Jesus, doesn't mean you have salvation. It doesn't mean you're in the new covenant. What is it that means we're in the new covenant? It means that Jesus Christ knows us. That's very backwards. You see, we, we think, well, you have to know Jesus. And that's true, but Jesus doesn't say, you never knew me. He says, I never knew you. And in Hebrews 8, quoting Jeremiah 31, he says, you'll no longer need to tell your neighbor and your relative, know the Lord, for they will already know me. See how the correlation comes in. And so what we have in the new covenant is we have the abiding presence of God. Not a God far off in heaven, some deism uh, belief where he floats off in the universe somewhere far away and is just hoping that we get it all right. He's a God that invades our world, invades our heart, comes in and changes things, sustains things, and works things for us. He's the God who saves us. We don't save ourselves. So the new covenant is better than the old covenant because we don't have a God far off. We have a God who comes and enters in. And then our third point, we have forgiveness of sin. We have forgiveness and mercy. Our previous point is that we have relation with God. And it's funny because in the passage in Hebrews 8, he says that they'll all know me from the greatest to the least. Why? For I'll forgive their wickedness and I'll remember their sins no more. How is it that we're able to know God? Because he has forgiven our sins and our wickedness. Because we have mercy and forgiveness, we get to know God. You see, the Old Covenant, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, is filled with if-then statements, conditional statements. And that's what makes the, the, the promises of the New Covenant better than the promises of the Old Covenant. The promises of the Old Covenant is if you do this, then you get this. If you do not do that, then you will get this. The promises of the New Covenant are entirely different, and so the promises of the New Covenant are better than the promises of the Old Covenant. Because according to the New Covenant, 
The conditions of the old covenant have been fulfilled, but not by us. We failed miserably at trying to live up to the conditions of the new covenant. That's why he says, they broke my covenant, and so I turned my back on them. All of us who are not inside of the new covenant, every one of us born from birth, break that old covenant. We break the law of God. And so because God is holy and just, he turns his back on us. But in the new covenant, we have something totally different. Because according to the new covenant, Jesus came to bear the curses for us so that on the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, on the cross, God turned his back on Jesus as if Jesus had broken every law of the old covenant. Why? Because Jesus came to bear the curses that we deserve so that we could receive the blessings that he earned. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, for God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. You see, the promises of the new covenant are better because we don't get them if we do well. We get them because Christ did perfectly. God demands perfection. Don't get it twisted. Don't, don't misinterpret. Don't set up the Ten Commandments and go, well, I'll fail at this one and this one and this one, but I won't murder, and so I should be okay. Jesus says if you've ever even hated someone, if you've ever been angered with someone, you've already committed murder against them in your heart. You've already broken it. Don't try to weigh out your relationship with God based on some standard of morality that you've kind of dreamed up as acceptable. God only accepts perfection. And in the new covenant, Christ is our perfection. That he robes us before God. And so according to Colossians chapter 1, we're holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. Christ has fulfilled all the conditions of the old covenant so that we can have all the promises of blessing. And in Galatians 3.13, the apostle Paul says, Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. Justice is satisfied on the head of Christ because our sin has been punished on him. And we receive all the blessings of God simply by grace as a gift because Christ in his goodness and kindness and love has purchased them for us. And he's transferred them to our account. And so in the new covenant, the conditions are removed. And so understand in the new covenant, when we sin, we're not sinning against law. We're sinning against divine love. So ultimately, this passage in Hebrews chapter 8, taken from Jeremiah 31, is a teaching of what we call the doctrine of regeneration, or, or rebirth, being made new. Uh, and it's what, it's, it's what Jesus alludes to in John chapter 3 when he speaks to Nicodemus. The cleanest religious man of his day, he said, you're still dead in sin. To even see the kingdom of heaven, you have to be born again. 
You have to be born into the family of God that you can inherit it freely. And I would say this, I think so often we look at that and we look at our, our culture today and we ask the problems, what is wrong with these millennials and what's wrong with this Generation Z and what's wrong with all these people? And let me just say this, there's nothing more wrong with us or them than there was with y'all or any other generation before. There's nothing more wrong with us than there was with Cain and Abel or with Adam and Eve immediately after they sinned. I think if there's anything that drives a generation deeper into darkness though, it's not that sin has gotten worse, it's that we've abandoned the doctrine of regeneration. Because we teach people that they should just pray a prayer so that they can walk into the gates of heaven forever and then set a couple of standards of how good you can be and then that's acceptable. And so we basically set the standards of being a Christ follower to be pure morality. Just do a few good things to feel a little bit better about yourself that you're better than this other guy and it's okay. And I think what's so interesting is we're seeing a younger generation that's hungry for a vibrant Christianity, something alive, something powerful. Later on in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, the author used this same passage again. He'll use the same passage from Jeremiah chapter 31, and, and Milt really alluded to it two weeks ago when he taught on Hebrews 10, 14, that we've been forever perfected. You see, when he alludes to it, he says that we've been, the, for, we've been forever perfected for those who are being made godly, for those who are being sanctified. And ultimately, that's the doctrine of justification, but the question has to come in, how do we know that we're justified? We know that we're justified if we've been regenerated. If we've been born again, then we know justification is ours. You see, God says, I'll write my law on their hearts and on their minds. And for those who have the law written on their hearts and their minds, I will remember their sins no more. In other words, there's nothing that can be brought to their account. And so with this, we see kind of a summation of what Pastor Milt taught two weeks ago, that we are justified and we can know that we're justified because God has written his law on our hearts and on our minds. And as Pastor, Pastor Seth taught last week, we don't lose our salvation because we have been forever perfected. And we know that we've been forever perfected. We know that we've been made right with God because we've been set apart, we've been sanctified. The law of God has been written on our hearts and on our minds. And if we have been forever perfected, then we can never be contaminated. We can never again be contaminated because he's washed it all away and there's nothing to bring to our account that he could remember. And so ultimately, if I could sum that up, what's the difference between the new covenant and the old covenant? It's the difference between tasting and taking in. To take it in means that the message of the gospel has taken root. The message of the good news has taken root in such a way that it has made you into a new creation. That's what it means to be having, having taken in the message, that it changes us from the inside. And if it's done that, and we see that continual work in our life, which comes only by faith, 
then we know that we're forever perfected. And the thing is, you can't separate those two things. Because the second you forget that you're made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ is the second you begin to depend on the law again for your righteousness before God. The second you fall back under old covenant. And so those two things work hand in hand. And praise God that he's given us his spirit within us to be constantly guiding us toward that new covenant. Constantly showing us Christ crucified on our behalf. And so let me give you an encouragement really quickly uh, for, for whatever party you fall under. If you're full-blown new covenant, you're like, man, I have grace and it's amazing. Or if you're wrestling still with that old covenant, if you're still partially under law and you're suffering with guilt and you're suffering with shame often. Psalm chapter three, verse three, the psalmist says this. He says, you are my glory, the one who holds my head high. Now David wrote this and you have to understand something. David's writing this in response to his son Absalom, who's chasing him down and wants to kill him. And David says to God, you're the one who holds my head high. Now that's a, that's a beautiful picture for us because ultimately what that is, if you imagine when a person feels sad and gloomy and they bow their chin, David says, you're the one that lifts my chin. You're the one that makes me proud. You're the one that gives me glory. You're the one that gives me something to boast. See, David, even though in the Old Testament he had some kind of understanding of the new covenant because there was nothing else that could lift his head high. He had nothing else to boast about, no other, no other bragging rights, no other pride. What could he possibly say? Could he possibly lean on being a good parent? His own son's looking to kill him. What could he look at? Could he look at how great he was at ruling the kingdom that's dividing before him? Could he brag on his morality? The reason his house is divided right now is because he looked at a woman on a roof who was married, brought her into himself, slept with her, got her pregnant, and then sent the man, the husband of the woman, off to war, who was his right-hand man, by the way, to have him murdered. He basically committed adultery and then set up a murder of an innocent man. There's no morality there. David has nothing to depend on other than God's gracious, merciful love toward him. And what's funny is he couldn't even see the Son of God crucified on his behalf to know that love, and yet we have it. And so let go of everything else because it will fail you miserably. Do not depend on your prayer life. Do not depend on your Bible reading time. Do not depend on your good morality. Do not depend on your church going. Do not depend on your Bible study groups. Don't depend on any of it, your ability to teach. None of it, none of it is what makes you in right standing with God. Look at the people in Matthew 7. We prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, did miracles in your name. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who break God's laws. Don't depend on the prayer that you once said. If you're going to depend on something, depend on the objective truth that Jesus Christ died for your sin. He paid your debt on the cross and he resurrected from the grave for your justification. 
and that he began that work in you, that you've been united with him in his death and your old person has died off and you've been resurrected to new life with him. And so walk with him. And that brings me to the, the final application point. Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, he says this. He says, work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and power to do what pleases him. Paul doesn't say be, be, be passive with your walk, but fight for it. Fight for it. Work out what God has done in you. But notice the motive in which we walk this thing out is not because we're trying to muster it up within ourselves. Paul says work it out because it's God who's worked it in. God's the one who's given you the desires and the power, the ability to do what pleases him. He's changed you in the deepest core part of your being. And so my recommendation for you is to work out what God has worked in. Look at what the imprint of the Spirit of God is on your life and step in line with it. That's what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. We don't have a code of morals that we're trying to fulfill. We have the, we have the law of God written on our heart. We have the Spirit of God living in us, moving us to delight in the things of God. And so the encouragement is that you never be discouraged because Christ is your perfection. So let go of everything else. And then work out what he's worked in so that you're walking with him day after day, beholding his glory and so being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Let's pray. Father, We thank you, Lord, that you're the God of mercy, that by your great love with which you loved us, you raised us up from the dead and you united us, united us with Christ. You made us alive with him. You washed away our sins. You washed away all the curses that were against us for our law-breaking. And you gave us peace with you, you gave us joy and gladness of heart. And you transferred to our account all of the perfect righteousness of Christ so that we stand before you entirely innocent. Father, I pray for those who struggle with that truth that it would take deep root in their heart so that when they face failures, when they face fears, when they face temptations, when they face whatever might come their way, they would remember that this weight is not on their shoulders, but Christ bore it for them. And so they have no excuse, whether they fail or whether they just grow weak, there's no excuse to ever turn away from you, but to always move toward you because Christ has removed the obstacle. Father, I pray for those who are just depending on their good works to get them into heaven. That in the most gentle and loving way, Father, you would break down their pride and you would lead them to the cross so they would see true peace and true freedom. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. So I pray from here on forth, Lord, we would move forward in your spirit, abounding in love for your name's sake. 
and that Christ would be praised for the work of regeneration that he's made in our hearts, restoring the image of our creator in us. Amen.